Hello and welcome to Catholic Answers Live on this Wednesday afternoon. Maybe it's Wednesday evening where you are. Maybe it's even Thursday morning if you're on the other side of the Dateline. Wherever you are, man, we're happy that you are here with us. Uh, it sure makes us happy that we get to do this. And you're welcome to call if you can, uh, if you can dial and, and uh, get to us here. Uh, wherever you are, 888-318-7884. But I'll tell you what, uh, specifically uh, this hour and next, uh, we'd love to hear from our Protestant brothers and sisters. We would love to hear from our Protestant brothers and sisters because uh, the title of both hours is Meeting Protestant Challenges. Now, a, a Catholic person might call and say, uh, I've got this challenge, uh, you know, that my uh, spouse or, you know, uh, my neighbor or a family member, friend, has made uh, from a Protestant perspective, yeah, that's perfectly fine. But uh, it, so you're welcome. But in particular, if there are Protestant folks who would like to pose those challenges and have those conversations, we would love to do that. And the number is 888-318-7884. The author of a whole bunch of books uh, is with us, but two of them on uh, the whole Catholic and Protestant uh, issue. Carla Broussard, our guest, uh, the first book of the two that I'm uh, referring to, Meeting the Protestant Challenge, How to Answer 50 Biblical Objections to Catholic Beliefs. And then the new one, Meeting the Protestant Response, uh, How to Answer Common Comebacks to Catholic Arguments. Carla Broussard, thank you for being here with us. Sorry, Kelly. Thanks for having me, buddy. Uh, the number again, 888-318-7884. And uh, the, the whole purpose of these books in, in a certain sense is to say, um, I, I well, I guess there's several purposes, but one of the things I note in both your tone and the way you write about these things is uh, a kind of to put Catholics on notice. Um, you're, you're not the only people with a point. It, it may be that you, in the end, you might not come to agree with what Protestants have to say, but they do have good points and you got to listen to them. That's right. Uh, in Especially in the second book, Meeting the Protestant Response, I wanted to give a voice to Protestant apologists relative to Catholics hearing that voice right. in order to know that they have reasonable comebacks. It's not that they're irrational or close-minded or just stubborn. Right. They have reasonable comebacks to our Catholic arguments, alternative interpretations of the text that we often appeal to in support of our beliefs, such that from their perspective, they are at peace intellectually to remain Protestant in the face of the Catholic argument. There's a reason why they don't buy it. You know, often people say, why don't they get it? It's so clear. Well, for many people, it's not so clear. Right. And what I'm trying to do in the book is to articulate the reasons why the Catholic interpretation is not so clear, precisely because there's a sort of a product, there is a Protestant lens through which they're looking at the text, given the alternative interpretation that Protestant apologists have put forward in coming back to or responding to the Catholic argument. And so that at least can allow the Catholic to uh, have a sense of respect, hopefully lead the Catholic to have a sense of respect, have a proper disposition toward the Protestant in the conversation to know that, hey, they have a legitimate uh, comeback to these arguments. And so we need to be serious and charitable in listening to those comebacks and thinking through them to see if they ultimately succeed or not in refuting the Catholic argument. I ultimately show in my book that they do not, but at the same time, we can still have respect for them knowing that they're thinking through these things as well. And so we can think through them together and hopefully have a cordial, 
charitable, loving uh, conversation about these issues that are divisive, right? They are dividing lines, essential differences between what we're believing as Catholics and what our Protestant friends. So in no way are we devaluing those differences and sweeping them under the rug in order to focus on the common ground. We're, we're highlighting those differences, but at the same time trying to think through those differences to see which of the alternative, which of the interpretations of the text, Catholic or Protestant, uh, fits best and makes most sense. 888-318-7884, the number 888-318-7884. Uh, we're delighted as Catholics that we've been called again and again uh, by the, the popes and by the magisterium of the church, especially since uh, the Second Vatican Council, to seek unity uh, with our brothers and sisters, unity in truth and in charity. And uh, so we love to have these conversations. Don't think, uh, please, because every now and then we get that, I don't want to call this as a show for Catholics and I don't want to take up your time. And I'll, No, that's not, that's not how this works. Uh, we want to talk with whoever would like to talk about this. 888 Seven eight eight four. Two lines open right now. We'll start with John in Anchorage, Alaska, listening on KHRA. John, glad you're here. Uh, go ahead with your uh, uh, question for Carlo. Sure. Sorry, and Carlo. My question has to do with the divine revelation, which we get through the Bible and sacred tradition. My question specifically has to do with sacred tradition. Is there is there an end date on interpretation of of sacred tradition. I've heard somewhere that when the last apostle passed on yeah. uh, St. John, that that was the end of sacred tradition. But can we still gather something from sacred tradition that we haven't, that that is interpreted after John passed on? Or what's the story on that? Yeah, so the, the, uh, the, the Catholic Church's position on the end of divine revelation which would be found in both Scripture and tradition, it, uh, came to an end, that period of divine revelation came to an end, as you stated, with the death of the last apostle. That's the, the Church's understanding of when divine revelation ceased to exist, and further revelation would not be given until the second coming of Christ. Unfortunately, I can't think of the exact citation in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Maybe later on in the show I can look it up and announce it over the air. But the Catechism uh, expresses and teaches uh, this this teaching, presents this teaching as divine revelations coming to an end, uh, at least for a time, with the death of the last possible. And this is contrasted with within the context of private revelations, right, which are revelations that will be given to an individual um, individual person for some particular reason. And that's contrasted with the public revelation, which, as the Catechism points out, ceased with the death of, death of the last apostle, and there would be no new public revelation until the end of time at the second coming of Christ. So, uh, John, you're, you're spot on there concerning the Catholic position, and even our Protestant friends will agree with us on this issue that divine revelation ceased to exist with the death of the last apostle. At least there's no more divine revelation until the second coming of Christ, which is an interesting agreement and an interesting belief, because as many apologists have pointed out before, this is a Christian belief that we hold to that is not found in sacred scripture. There is no biblical text that expressly teaches us or that teaches us even implicitly that divine revelation would cease to exist 
with the death of the last apostle and no more new revelation being given by God until the second coming of Christ. So this is a Christian belief that's actually held by both Catholics and Protestants that goes beyond the boundaries of the New Testament, which for our Christian friends who hold to the doctrine of sola scriptura, that's going to be a bit problematic for them since scripture alone is the infallible source for what we ought to be believing as Christians. Yet this is a Christian belief held to by sola scriptura advocates that is not found in scripture. Uh, so the sacred tradition, as you mentioned it, John, one of the two ways in which God's revelation uh, through Jesus Christ is transmitted to us, uh, that sacred tradition would be complete along with scripture with the death of the last apostle, hence no new Revelation. Hopefully that's helpful for you, brother. Uh, I hope so, too. John, thanks for calling all the way uh, from Alaska. I mean, I guess the phones work the same there, but it's nice to get a call from Alaska. we got to take our first break, however. Meeting Protestant challenges. If you are a Protestant brother or sister, a non-Catholic uh, Christian of the— I, 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 I guess I'm struggling exactly how to say it because I know that there are, especially uh, young people, who will say, I'm not a, a Protestant, I'm just a Christian. So yeah. if, if you're a brother uh, or sister Non-Catholic Christian—, Christian. Non-Catholic. There yeah. you go. Non Even if you don't label yourself as Protestant, non-Catholic right. Christian, you're welcome here, and we'll take whatever label you want. We're not try we're not trying to be uh, impose anything on you. We just like to have these conversations. 888-318-7884. Right back with more with Carla Broussard meeting Protestant challenges on Catholic Answers Live. Hang on, Catholic Answers Live will return in a moment. Are you a coffee drinker? If so, you can now enjoy a coffee roasted to perfection by the Carmelite Monks of Wyoming. Delicious Mystic Monk coffee is roasted and prepared by monks in a hidden cloistered monastery and is available in over 25 varieties. All Mystic Monk coffees are works of perfection and labors of love. For more information on how to purchase Mystic Monk coffee, visit mysticmonkcoffee.com. That's mysticmonkcoffee.com. Are you ready to spread your wings? Wings is the weekly newsletter that's packed with exclusive news, program information, features, and updates of all that's going on at the Global Catholic Network. To sign up, go to EWTN.com, click subscribe, enter your name and email address, and you'll start getting your wings every week. Get your wings today. It's the weekly newsletter from EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Welcome back. Catholic Answers Live. Just so you know, all of Carlo's uh, books are on sale over at shop.catholic.com. You can get uh, Purgatory is for Real. You can get Prepare the Way. You can get uh, Meeting the Protestant Challenge. Meeting Protestant. Yeah, the Protestant Challenge. Meeting the Protestant Response. All on sale right now at shop.catholic.com. We're talking about Meeting Protestant Challenges this hour and next on Catholic Answers Live. Uh, we do. We are uh, sometimes uh, challenged just right out of the blue. As a matter of fact, we were taking our uh, staff Christmas card picture at the beach the other day, and a gentleman came up and wanted to explain why Seventh-day Adventists were right and we Catholics were wrong. So uh, if you've uh, wanted to have these conversations with a Catholic, uh, maybe you've thought it through uh, well, maybe you're still thinking it through, whatever the stage of the conversation, we'd love to have it with you, 888-318-7884. Heather's in Charleston, South Carolina, listening on 7.30 a.m. 
Oh, wait, before I go to you, Heather, hang on, because Carlo, you had told the gentleman in the, of the last caller that we had that yeah. you would have some citations for him on the end of Revelation. Yeah, unfortunately, Revelation. unfortunately, I didn't have those resources on hand, but a quick search, um, I was able to find at least three here. So, for example, Pope St. Pius X's Lamentabile Sane, which was a syllabus concerning errors of modernists. Oh, yeah. And one of the modernist her heresies was that revelation constituting the object of the Catholic faith was not completed with the apostles. The implication being, in the positive, that it would be completed with the apostles. First Vatican Council in his dogmatic constitution, Pastor Ternus, also affirmed this teaching. And then the Catechism of the Catholic Church is paragraph 66. Oh, okay. And that's where the Catechism... Uh, affirms, again, this teaching that revelation has already been complete. Um, no, there will be no new public revelation is to be expected before the glorious manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to talk about how we can still unpack that revelation and come to see and have deeper insights into that revelation. But that's paragraph 66 of the Catechism. So there's a few resources for John and our listeners out there. All right, Heather in Charleston, thanks for waiting. Go ahead with your question for Carlo. Yes, I just want to reassure you as an Anglican in Charleston, South Carolina, that we are so grateful that you refer to us as friends, because many oh. of us here refer to our Catholic brothers and sisters as friends also. Praise God. Thank and, you for that, Heather. Yes, and I just want you to have an appreciation that we're in a season where many of us feel very compelled. We must stay rooted in, in the denominations and tribes that God has put us in so that we continue to advocate for friendships towards Catholicism and also to learn from each other, because this is such an important time for all of us to stay rooted, grounded in the faith, pass things on to our children, but speak well of the brethren and learn from each other. Amen. I know there's one member of our tribe that went over to you, the I think the, the Bishop of Rochester in England, and oh, yeah, I, I want to uh, just, yes, I think it's Bishop Anur Ali, um, and what was a blessing is that I was able to go into my priest and say, oh my gosh, one of the bishops went over to Catholicism, and they their response was actually one of grief and sadness. Oh my gosh, we've lost a brother. I said, no, you've gained a friend. Hmm. So I just want to encourage you all that Thank there are many of us who have a heart for the brethren all over the world. I, I don't feel a strong sense that I need to uh, align at this time in my life with the, the Roman Catholic Church, but I do understand the universal church and that we have a heart for, for Jesus and we want you to know we're in fellowship with you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray for you as brothers and sisters in Christ also. So I want you to know not all of us feel compelled to make the, the step into Catholicism because the Lord has spoken to our hearts. Stay rooted, stay strong in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, continue to learn from each other, and just be so grateful for what you learn um, from the Catholic brothers and sisters because you have such a heritage and legacy from which we learn from. Um, but I know the Lord wants me to stay rooted. So I would just encourage you to, to know we love you and you are our brethren and that we speak well of you. And I'm so grateful for Her Majesty the Queen, who, of course, the defender of the faith, was the head of our church, and she restored orthodoxy to the monarchy, and we were all witnesses to that. And I want to thank you for speaking well of her on your network. That was oh. beautiful, and I'm just so grateful to you. 
Yeah, it was a real. Uh, I mean, I, I, the the sense I think that we Catholics uh, had of uh, the Queen, those who paid attention, was that she uh, had genuinely come to the Christian faith. We I, I felt very grateful every Christmas with her Christmas message, where she reminded people. Uh, that Jesus Christ was the Lord and that he was born on that day, where you would never get a, a an American president saying <laughs> something, or, or it's just harder to get an American president saying something like that. Uh, did you want to address what Heather had to say, Carlo? Yeah, well, I appreciate her loving comments and her kind words, and we, in return, affirm uh, that she is a sister by the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ through valid baptism. We are all members of the mystical body of Christ, even though... Uh, Heather, given her choice to remain an Anglican, is not visibly united with us in the Catholic Church, assuming here, I'm going to assume that her choice to not be visibly united with the Catholic Church is due to uh, some mitigating factor, maybe in full choice or invincible ignorance in her intellectual judgment uh, concerning being visibly united with the Church. So assuming those conditions are met, and she's visibly united via grace, although not visibly united, we consider her as a separated sister, right? Yep. We're a sister, but separated, given the lack of visible unity. Now, with that said, I would encourage Heather to continue thinking through the issues that divide us as Catholics and Anglicans, especially the papacy, and the understanding of the Bishop of Rome and his role as the successor to St. Peter, as the chief universal shepherd of Christ's flock here on earth. And I would encourage Heather and others listening to check out Catholic.com and all of the free resources that we have uh, on the Catholic faith and the essential issues that would divide us as Catholics and Anglicans, and invite Heather to come into the Catholic Church, you know? I mean, after the investigation and once she... Uh, goes through that investigation, but I just want to extend the invitation for her to continue considering uh, these issues. But I, I do I, appreciate her her loving and charitable uh, spirit and affirmation of our uh, union with each other. And 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 as Catholics, we uh, I mean I, I think one thing that um, non-Catholic Christians should probably understand about us Catholics is, is we don't have uh, the option uh, to. Um, Accept disunity. Uh, we're we're obligated. We've been directed by popes and councils um, that we have an obligation to seek Christian unity, full, public, clear Christian unity. Yeah, that, not just the invisible level, but, but also the visible level. Yeah, yeah. So that and, and um, so because we would argue as Catholics, according to the New Testament and what our Lord has revealed to us, that visible unity with his church, that is, unity with Peter and his successors, the bishops of Rome, is a, an essential element of membership in the Christian community. Uh, Heather, uh, God bless you. Thank you so much uh, for the call. Uh, I know Edgar's very busy on the phones, but if, if, um, if uh, Heather would like one of Carlo's books, give her any, any of the books that she wants, and, um, uh, and I hope we'll hear from you again. What a, a good, kind and gracious person you are. Joanna in Maryland is next listening to EWTN on Channel 130, Sirius XM Satellite Radio. Joanna, we're glad you're here. Uh, go ahead with your uh, question or challenge for Carla. Well, a couple of things. I'm really calling about the beatific vision, but speaking of Queen Elizabeth, I thought we all witnessed a bit of an assumption into heaven because she was so faithful. Queen Elizabeth? 
assumed into heaven? Yeah, her death. Her oh. death. Her death was so you don't mean bodily. And peaceful and graceful. Yeah, I, oh, I, I, I think Joanna's just no, speaking no, no. about oh, yeah, yeah. given no, her that... holiness. Likely, maybe, perhaps she went into heaven. Um, That's what Joanna's. Yes, saying. Uh, we it had is. a corpus. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the kind of death any of us could wish for because she was so faithful. Plus, I like it's like billions of people around the world. The minute they hear of her death, say in their heart, "God save the queen." So, if you got all those people praying for you, that's got to help. <laughs> yeah, uh, and at the same time, too, as a Catholic, Joanna, we we don't want to uh, lose sight of uh, the spiritual work of mercy of praying for the dead. So, we do pray for the repose of her soul in good, with good hope that she'll be at, she's in heaven. Uh, okay, so uh, you, you you wanted to talk about the beatific vision, however. Yeah, my question was: Do we have declared people saints have they achieved that or is that something we all have to wait for till the 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 last roundup or the final final judgment good question joanna yeah the answer is no we do not have to wait until the final judgment in order to receive the beatific vision Uh, we can attain the beatific vision before the final judgment and the saints that are canonized and declared to be in heaven that involves the declaration that they are experiencing the, the beatific vision. And we have an infallible teaching on this that was issued by Pope Benedict XII in his papal bull, Benedictus Deus, in 1336. This was a question that was being debated at the time, whether the deceased and the holy souls who were in the afterlife, if they had to wait to the final judgment to receive the beatific vision, or if they could receive the beatific vision before the final judgment. And Pope Benedict Twelfth settled that theological dispute by infallibly teaching that uh, the saints in heaven, the, the blessed, are in heaven in the sense that they are experiencing the beatific vision even before the final judgment. And also, too, in that very papal bull, Benedict the, Benedict the Twelfth also affirms uh, the teaching of purgatory as well. So you might want to check that out. You can get that for free online. Just type in Benedictus Deus or just Pope Benedict the 12, 1336, and it will come up for you. You can read it. Uh, thanks, Joanna. I appreciate the question. I do. Uh, I, I am in favor of changing uh, the description of the final judgment to the final roundup. I think that's uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm all in favor. It sounds very American. The final roundup. Uh, Brian in San Antonio, Texas, listening on 89.7 FM. Uh, go ahead, Brian, with your question for or challenge for Carlo. Hello, Hi, Brian. Um, I am a convert, um, and one thing that was influential for me was the, um, the philosophically was the, the, the authority of the church, the magisterium. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering how um, it seems to me that that's kind of like the one argument that's hard to, um, for, on a, for a Protestant to defend. I was wondering, um, one, how would I, I guess, approach that with my Protestant friends? Um, yeah. And if, yeah. Nope, we would lost you there a little bit at the end, but we got the question there, Brian. Okay, Brian. Well, excellent question, brother. Uh, so first of all, I just want to recommend that you go to catholic.com, type in authority of the church, and you'll get plenty of free resources. So what I'm going to, going to articulate for you in summary fashion, you can spend a heck of a lot more time <laughs> on your own reading through this stuff at Catholic.com. Basically, Brian, it's important that we look to the New Testament and ask the question, what is the paradigm that Jesus sets up for his flock, 
for Christians, both in the first century and by way of extension for all centuries to come. And what we see in the New Testament, Brian, the paradigm for Christians to know with certainty, divine revelation, what they have to believe to be saved, what they have to do to be saved, is an authority that is not restricted to the written scriptures, the inspired word of God, or God's word in written form alone. We affirm with our Protestant brethren, yes, the inspired word of God is binding, it is authoritative, but we also see in the New Testament that Jesus sets up a living teaching authority, a group of officials that are invested with an authority to teach Christ's flock, to govern the shepherd, to teach, excuse me, to govern the sheep, to teach the sheep, to preserve them in the truth that Jesus Christ has given to us, whether it's found in the written word or in the apostolic preaching, as St. Paul uh, expresses in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, hold fast to the traditions that you have received from us, either through written epistle or word of mouth. And so the evidence for this body of teaching officials, you could just look to the 12 apostles themselves, right, and provide evidence that the early church was operating on this paradigm of a living teaching authority to whom we could approach with disputes about theological issues or disputes about what is God's revelation. So for example, oh, I hear the music coming, Brian, we're on a hard break. So if you hang on, buddy, on the other side of the break, we'll try to uh, tackle this a little bit more. Meeting Protestant challenges today on Catholic Answers Live. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we got all the lines full at the moment as they open up. You can call 888-318-7884. Right back with more Protestant challenges for the Catholic faith with Carla Broussard on Catholic Answers Live. You're listening to Catholic Answers Live. The recent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade was a monumental victory for the pro-life movement. But the fight is far from over. With our new booklet, Why We're Pro-Life, we have produced the perfect tool to prepare you to have peaceful and convincing conversations to shed light on the truth about human life from conception to natural death. Catholic Answers is printing millions of copies of this booklet, and we plan simply to give them away. You can help us in two ways. First, by generously supporting this project. 25 cents prints one book. $2,500 prints 10,000 and so on. Second, by helping us distribute the booklet through your parish, your school, or the pro-life ministry you work with. Catholic Answers is going to blanket the country with why we're pro-life. But only if you step up and help us. Thank you so much. For more information, visit whyweareprolife.com. Have you enrolled in the Catholic Answers School of Apologetics? Let me ask you a more important question. Do you believe as a Catholic that you have an obligation to share the Catholic faith? In fact, the church has answered this question, and the answer is that all confirmed Catholics are obliged to share the faith. It's actually in canon law. Catholic Answers is here to help you fulfill that obligation. Our School of Apologetics courses will equip you to help all the people you come in contact with understand what the church teaches and why. A great place to start is with all the Catholics in your life. Learn the art of apologetics from the best of the best and start sharing the gospel today. Visit schoolofapologetics.com. That's schoolofapologetics.com. 
miss a show? Make sure to catch up by downloading the podcast, available online at catholic.com. Matt Swaim here. Tomorrow on the Sunrise Morning Show, we'll talk Bible foods with Rita Heikenfeld and get you all the latest news, weather, sports, and more. Now back to Catholic Answers Live. Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. Did Matt Swaim just say they're talking about Bible foods tomorrow on Sunrise Morning Show? i got to get up early now. i got to get up early to catch that. I love what uh, Anna and Matt do on the Sunrise Morning Show. Cy Kellett, uh, your host. Absolutely. Uh, Carla Broussard, our guest. We're talking with Brian in San Antonio, Texas. The whole uh, topic of this show and the next hour is uh, meeting Protestant challenges. So uh, it's you know what? It's mostly been uh, delightful, lovely people who have called and uh, uh so if you're not a delightful, lovely person and you want to be more challenging to Carla, you're welcome to call as well. We need some not delightful and lovely people. 888-318-7884. We appreciate the charity. Well, we do appreciate the charity, yes. Um, uh, but I, I want to see you work a little harder, Carla. Uh, Brian in San Antonio was asking, how do, his, I, I, I'll phrase the question, Brian, you can tell me if I, I get it right. But basically, um, you have he's got Protestant friends saying, look, the, the, there's, the, the Scripture has authority. Um, so why do you uh, assign this authority to the church uh, in addition to Scripture? Is that right, Brian? Yes. Okay. Carlo? All right, Brian. So what I was trying to uh, explain before the break was when we look in the New Testament, we see, for example, in Acts chapter 15, there was a major dispute as to how a man is to be saved. That's pretty darn important, right? We're talking about God's revelation about how a man is to be saved. Some Early Christians within that early Christian, first century Christian church were saying that you got to be circumcised, hold fast to the Mosaic law in order to be saved. Other Christians like Paul and Barnabas were saying, no, we're saved by God's grace, etc. And Luke tells us in Acts 15, 1 through 2, that this was no, there was no small dissension here. This was a big debate. And so what did they do? They took it to Jerusalem for the apostles and the elders to convene in a council to consider the matter. The issue was settled through the preaching of St. Peter in Acts chapter 15, verses 7 through 11, where he settles the debate. And then they begin to consider some pastoral issues concerning how to keep the peace between Gentile converts, Gentile Christians, and new Jewish converts to Christianity who still had sensibilities about eating meats offered to idols, eating meats not fully strangled, uh, drained of blood, etc., And so what this shows us, Brian, is that there was a paradigm that these early Christians were operating on concerning uh, how to determine with certitude God's revelation. And what did they appeal to? But the very living teaching authority of the church, that is Peter and the apostles. And I would argue that in that text, Peter's actually exercising a unique and special authority over and above the other apostles because he's the one who takes the initiative and he's the one who settles the bait and nobody questions his declaration as to what the Christian people are to believe. He speaks on behalf of the Christian church saying, we believe that we're saved by grace and not by circumcision. And so there we have a paradigm, Brian, on how the early church was to settle theological disputes. It was by appeal to the living teaching authority of the church, interpreting God's revelation as it was found 
at that time through the through through Jesus Christ and through what the apostles were receiving in revelation and they were simply following the instruction of Jesus Brian in Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 17 Jesus said if a brother sins against you go and try to convince him if he doesn't listen to you take two or three witnesses with you if he does not listen to the two or three witnesses take him to the church and in verse 17 Jesus says if he does not listen to the church treat him as a gentile or a tax collector in other words, the individual who is sinning, if he doesn't adhere to the judgment of the church, then he's outcast. He's outside of the Christian community. And that's exactly what these early Christians do in Acts chapter 15. So that's one way, Brian, that you could go about showing historically from the New Testament for our Protestant friends, they're going to believe this inspired word of God. So it's an appeal to an equal authority here that the paradigm in the first century Christian church for determining what is God's revelation was an appeal to this living teaching authority. We call it a magisterium and found in Peter and the apostles. And so the question becomes, Brian, does that paradigm shift or change with the death of the last apostle? Number one, the answer is no, because there is no evidence to support such a shift. And secondly, there is evidence to support the claim that the paradigm is intended by Christ to continue for all centuries of Christianity to come, even after the apostolic age. We see this in the pastoral epistles of Paul giving instructions to Timothy about who to appoint in the office of the bishop, which is going to have an authority to exhort and expound sound doctrine and rebuke those who are confuting or teaching contrary to sound doctrine. And we see this confirmed in the early writings of the early Christian testimony of Ignatius of Antioch in 107 AD, in Justin Martyr, in St. Irenaeus of Lyon in AD 180, all of which, in the beginning of the second century all the way through, affirm this paradigm that involves a living teaching authority to whom we can appeal in order to derive certainty about God's revelation, as opposed to appealing only to the inspired Word of God found in written form. The Catholic claim, according to the New Testament evidence, Brian, which I think the New Testament evidence supports the Catholic claim, is that our Lord has given us this magisterium, this living teaching authority, to be the very guardian of God's revelation given to us as found in written form, sacred scripture, and in the apostolic tradition. This living teaching authority is the guardian and a, a transmitter of that divine revelation to expound it for us so that we can know, as the Christians of first century Christianity, what is the truth of God's revelation? And that living teaching authority is found in the successors of Peter and the apostles, primarily the successor of Peter, the bishop of Rome, and all of the successors of the apostles, namely the bishops, who are united with him. So that's a path that we can take. Uh, Brian, does that all work for you? Do we lose Brian? Yes, thank you. Okay. Thank you. All right. Very good. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, we're, we're taking uh, Protestant challenges to the Catholic faith, meeting Protestant challenges today with Carla Broussard, the author of the brand new book. Well, not brand new, a few months old, but uh, it's still a baby book. Meeting mm -hmm. the Protestant response, how to answer common comebacks to Catholic arguments. We're going to Nebraska now. D, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Uh, D, go ahead with your question or your challenge for Carla. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a sister-in-law who is Baptist, and we've had some fabulous conversations. I think we really are learning from each other. Mm -hmm. um, 
but she, um, as she talks about her faith and the doctrines of the Baptist Church, yeah. they sound very Protestant. It's the sola scriptura, the faith alone. They don't believe in the Pope. They don't believe yeah. in the real presence of the Eucharist, all of that. But she um, indicates that they are not Protestant. Mm. They actually trace their roots all the way back to the apostles, and they believe that they're the one true church that Jesus founded. And part of what the the one difference that I hear that she has said a couple of times to set them apart from Protestants is that during the Protestant Reformation, um, you know, it was the Catholics who participated in the killing of, of Protestants or people of other religions, and it was the Anabaptists who did not participate in that. And so they are really the one true, true Catholic Church, but they don't recognize the Pope or they don't have that one leader of their church. And so I was just hoping you could maybe fill in some blanks in, in regards to, you know, the, their argument that um, they're the one true church and the Catholics were the spinoff or the— Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. Well, you would have yeah. to make that argument. All right, but. so let, let's think through this, Dee. Thank you very much for your call. So notice how the conclusion— Catholic Church is not the original church, is based on the premise, right? The reason that she's giving for this is that the Catholic Church had sinners in its ranks and committed atrocities. Okay, well, if committing atrocities and sinful leaders of your church precludes or excludes your church from being the one true church established by Jesus, well, then we're going to have to exclude Peter and the apostles in the first century from being the leaders and the originators of the original church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they committed atrocities as well. Peter denied our Lord. Yes, he repented, but he denied our Lord. A leader of one of the twelve, Judas, denied our Lord, betrayed him, and from the looks of it, he despaired. The other apostles, Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 27, that all of them, in some way betrayed our Lord, and they fled, and were not associated with our Lord during his passion and death. So if we're going to make holiness of leaders of the church the condition for being the original true church, then we're, we're going to have to say that the early apostles were not the true church established by Jesus. But of course, that's absurd. That's false. So once we expose that flawed reasoning there, that they're using holiness as a condition for determining which is the true church, like the holiness of the members of the church as a condition for which is the true church, well, then we ask the question, okay, well, how would we identify the true church of Jesus Christ? Well, D, when we look at the early Christian writings in the second century, for example, and even in the first century, if we look at... Clement's letter to the Corinthians in the first century, some dated to A.D. 70, some dated to A.D. 90, Clement talks about bishops being the successors to the apostles. And in Clement's mind, in the way that he's writing, that is one of the ways in which we can identify the true church of Jesus, by looking to the succession of the apostles in the bishops. And then we see this confirmed again and again in the second century. St. Irenaeus, when he's talking about how to refute heretics, like how to know these guys are teaching things contrary to the orthodox faith of Christianity, what do we do? Irenaeus tells us we look to the succession of the apostles and the succession of the apostles in the bishops because therein lies 
the preservation of the apostolic tradition, of the truth of God's revelation given to us through Jesus as taught by the apostles. So, in your conversation with your friend here, you could sort of carve this path or pave this path or articulate this way of going about it and saying, listen, for these early Christians, they were looking to the succession of the apostles and the bishops for determining which was the true church of Jesus Christ and who had the true faith. Does your community have ministers who have been ordained by men who can be traced back all the way to the apostles? And of course, within the Anabaptist tradition, the answer would be no. So that would be one way of going about it. But then we have to take an extra step forward, further D, and say, well, even though a Christian community might have bishops that can trace their historical lineage through succession all the way back to the apostles, the question becomes, well, do they have the successor to St. Peter? And that's where the essential difference is going to come into play between Catholicism and all other groups of Christianity, even amongst our Orthodox brethren, because it's the successor to St. Peter and the bishopric of Rome, namely the Pope, that is the identifying marker of the original Church of Jesus Christ, because in Matthew 16, 18, our Lord tells Peter, Simon, you, are the, you, are, you shall be called Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Peter, being the visible foundation of Jesus' church, allows, gives us, a visible marker for identifying the true church of Jesus, because wherever the foundation is, there's the true church of Christ. And of course, according to historical documentation, Peter died as the bishop of Rome, so the successors to St. Peter as the bishop of Rome would continue in that ministry of being the visible foundation of Christ here on earth, Christ's church here on earth, the keeper of the keys, the supreme binder and looser, the universal shepherd of Christ's flock here on earth. And that, D, is how we would move forward in articulating how we can determine that the Catholic Church is the original church established by Jesus, not only by comparing and contrasting teachings, like the Catholic Church teaches this, this is what we find in the New Testament, in the early Christian testimony, but also by way of the historical succession to the apostles and more specifically to St. Peter. Uh, all right, D, it all makes sense. I don't know what happened to D. I'm not so, sure. Sorry, yeah, D. Sorry about that. No, no, I that... muted to the... Oh, no, you no, did no. the old yes. mute thing. I do that all the time. Uh, <laughs> it's just I do it to other people. Uh, but, uh, okay. But yes, thank you. I was taking notes frantically, so I think I got it all. Thank you. Well, there's a, a good amount of, of similar uh, stuff on our website, catholic.com. Yeah, so uh, if you've taken uh, notes frantically, uh, you can also just... Uh, follow up there. Yeah, and maybe we can send her a copy of my new book, Meeting the Protestant Response. Yeah. I have five chapters. The first five chapters of the book deal all with the New Testament evidence for Peter as the first pope mm -hmm. and the Protestant comebacks to those arguments. So that might be helpful for Dee in presenting that information to her Baptist friend and saying, hey, look, this is the paradigm in the first century, the, the papacy. and." Yeah. And, uh, and so this is how we're going to identify the true church of Jesus. Uh, we'll send you a meeting, the Protestant response. If you hang on, uh, D, uh, Edgar will get your information and we'll send it off uh, to Nebraska. Happy to do it. Um, I, I got to go to a quick break. So Elizabeth and Albany, I know you've been waiting, but I'm going to get to you right when we get uh, back. Um, I, it's, it's, it, in recent years, I've been impressed with how many people 
have um, broken through that sense that the Catholic Church is a spinoff from the the true church, church by um, reading uh, Ignatius of Antioch. That uh, he seems to have an effect on people, like because they he knew the Apostle John, and he's he's obviously a very uh, important uh, first and second century author. Yes, and the faith that he describes among the early Christians sounds awfully Catholic. Yeah, indeed it does. I mean, you have his explicit belief in the Eucharist being the flesh of Jesus Christ. You have his articulation of the threefold rank of bishop, presbyter, and deacon, and identifying the bishop to have that authority over the local church. And even uh, in his letter to the Romans, where he's writing to the Romans, speaking to them in a very different way than he speaks to the other local churches. Yeah. And, you know, writes in his letter that they preside in, that the Church of Rome presides in love, which many scholars will argue can be translated or interpreted as presiding over the community of love. Right. And presiding, the very word used there by Ignatius, used elsewhere for the bishop presiding over the local church, the implication being that the Church of Rome presides over... The rest All of, of the, the other churches. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dee, uh, thanks for the call and the question. We got lots more. I don't know what lots smokes mean. We got lots <laughs> more folks uh, on the line, uh, but one line open right now. If you've got a Protestant challenge for Carlo, 888-318-7884. Hang on. We'll be right back with more Catholic Answers Live. Underwriting for Catholic Answers Live is provided by Real Estate for Life. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations. On the web at realestateforlife.org. Do you love sharing the gospel and want to learn to be more effective? Join the St. Paul Street Evangelization Online School of Evangelization. You will learn to build bridges of trust and make disciples by befriending strangers, proclaiming the gospel, inviting people to the church, and praying with others. We'll ask for a pledge of financial support, but if you are unable to give, we'll give you a membership at no cost. Find out more and get involved today at streetevangelization.com. That's streetevangelization.com. Want the latest pro-life news? Want it delivered? Sign up. It's free. EWTN Pro-Life Weekly, your source for everything happening now in the fight to protect the sanctity of human life. New episodes delivered every week to your inbox. So if you really want to know, sign up today. Go to EWTN.com forward slash pro-life today. Bill Coleman back to Catholic Answers Live. I just love speaking Swedish. It takes me back to my childhood on Cape Cod where everyone spoke Swedish. Elizabeth in Albany, New York, uh, watching on YouTube, uh, been waiting. You got a question or a challenge for Carlo, Elizabeth? Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, this is more of a question, not really a challenge. All right. So I am, um, I, can you hear me? Yes, yes, yes very we well. Can. Yeah. So um, I am a, I will, I guess, classify, classify myself as a non-Catholic Christian. However, mm-hmm. I'm in the process of um, becoming an Anglican. And um, in, like, recently, I've, I've really been looking into the Catholic Church. 
I may end up just describing myself as an Anglo Catholic, but um, my I think my my top barrier or stumbling block to actually becoming a Roman Catholic is um, the confession of faith that you're required to make when you're receiving to the church, which is that you um, you're not only required to believe in Jesus Christ as as your Lord and Savior, which is the minimum requirement to be a Christian, but you're also confessing that you will believe in all of the church's teachings mm-hmm. or submit yourself to all of the church's teachings. And right. that's where um, there's a, that's that barrier for me because I, I do believe, so I agree with some of the, some of um, the Catholic church's stances, uh, believe it or not, even on contraception as a Protestant. Awesome. Um, however, there are some positions that I don't agree yeah. with. Yeah. And so if that's a requirement, then I can. I just don't see myself ever becoming a Catholic. Yeah. So I wanted clarification on that, like, because I I realized huh. too that apparently there's different levels of teachings to that the is church. True. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let Carlo so give it a try, and then we'll come back and see if it if, if we get if we if it satisfies you. Yeah. Ahead, so Elizabeth, let's back up. Let's take a step back and ask the question: Why would the church make this claim that we need to submit? to what the church teaches, understanding that there's going to be different levels of submission, and we can talk about that in a few moments. The answer to that question is that we claim and believe it to be true that the Catholic Church is established by Jesus Christ, and that our Lord invested with Peter and the apostles, uh, bestowed upon them a special gift of the Holy Spirit to guide and to lead them in teaching Christ's flock here on earth, and by way of extension, their successors, the bishops, right? And in particular, the successor to St. Peter, the Pope. Now, if that is true, Elizabeth, then the Catholic Church, and more specifically, when the magisterium teaches us something, binding us to believe something about God's revelation, well, then we can take it to the bank and know that it is going to be true. And that's what we call an infallible teaching, right? It's set forth in a definitive way. It's binding for us as Christians, and we got to believe this to be either a part of divine revelation, and thus infallible, or in some way related to divine revelation, and thus true and infallible. Those are distinct levels of teaching within the category of infallible teaching. And so we're going to believe that stuff either based upon the authority of the church, because Christ gave the church the authority to teach us these things in certain conditions to be true, or we're going to believe it because it's coming from God's Word, whether in sacred scripture or sacred tradition, and the church is teaching us, teaching it to be so. And so you can kind of see there, Elizabeth, the rationale as to why the church is making this claim, like, we need to submit to this stuff. Why? Well, because Jesus established the church, gave the church the authority to speak on his behalf. And so when we assent to these infallible teachings of the church, Elizabeth, we're assenting to Jesus. So that's why the church would say, you got to submit to these essential teachings, these infallible teachings, because it's ultimately all about Jesus. Now, concerning non-infallible teachings, right? Well, with those teachings, the church is still uh, demanding of us, out of obedience, to 
have a religious submission of intellect and will to these teachings. That is not to say that if you have a hard time believing it within your heart, you're not under the pain of mortal sin and then you're not subject to going to hell, okay? That's not the case for non-infallible teachings. It's that we must have a sense of humility to defer to this common teaching of the church, recognizing that generally the Holy Spirit is guiding the church here, and it's probably most likely true that the church is right and I'm wrong, even though interiorly I can't assent to it. But on these teachings, one would not be under the pain of mortal sin if they can't assent to it interiorly. Now, granted, I as a Catholic couldn't go around publicly dissenting from this non-infallible common authoritative teaching of the church, but if I can't accept it interiorly, I'm not in danger of separating myself from the mystical body of Christ or going to hell or something. And so, as you pointed out, Elizabeth, it's important for us to distinguish these different levels of teaching because they require different kinds of submission, as I've just articulated. But the ground of all of this, Elizabeth, is the Catholic understanding that Peter and the apostles and their successors have the authority of Christ himself to speak on his behalf. As our Lord said in Luke 10, 16, he who hears you, hears me. And think about this, Elizabeth, in the first century, as I articulated earlier, in Acts chapter 15, Christians of the first century were expected to assent to the very proclamation of St. Peter that we are saved by God's grace and not through circumcision and adherence to the Mosaic law. And that is what we Catholics say exists still to this day in the magisterium with the Pope and the bishops united to the Pope. So if we're going to have a problem, Elizabeth, think about this. If we're going to have a problem with this authority issue and assenting to what the church teaches us authoritatively, then we're going to, we would have a problem in the first century as being a Christian with the apostles in assenting to the authoritative teaching of Peter and the apostles at the Council of Jerusalem. And I'm sure we don't want to do that. Like, I don't think we're the type of Christian that we would have a problem with that. So if we don't have a problem with assenting to the authoritative teaching of Peter and the apostles in the first century of the Council of Jerusalem, then we shouldn't have a problem with this idea of the magisterium in the Catholic Church. Uh, Elizabeth, I said I was going to come back to you, and that now appears to have been a and a, I was long-winded, and my apologies. Promise on my part, but if you hang on and you if you want to uh, follow up uh, on the other side of the break, we can do that. We're going to be uh, gone for a few minutes, um, uh, I, and I left some other folks waiting too. So if you're on the line, hang on the line. Uh, if you haven't called yet, there's a couple lines open: eight 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 three one eight seven. 884. Uh, if Elizabeth doesn't want to hang on, uh, would you send her a copy of Prepare the Way, Overcoming Obstacles to God, the Gospel, and the Church, Carlo's book? Uh, and we will take a very quick break and be right back with more Protestant challenges to Catholic faith. Carlo Broussard, just one of the very best Catholic apologists anywhere on this planet, here to take calls and answer questions. 888-318-7884.